And maybe some of you are here today and you're thinking, wow, I, I, I would have an interest in equipping myself to serve in a greater capacity in the local church, and this is a chance for you to do that right here. Uh, I do want to make mention of the one thing that uh, we, we talked about earlier. If you'll get this card, you know, we have the opportunity to minister to people that are moving to our area from Afghanistan. They leave in a very tough situation. These people have been traumatized by the events that have taken place in Afghanistan, and God is bringing them to our town, Springfield, Missouri, and we want to be a part of the group of people that will like, be here for them and, and help uh, them find their way in, an, in a new culture, a new community, and a new area. I mean, this, this is like God is saying, I'm bringing the world to you, so I want you to help them because to show kindness to strangers is one of the greatest things that we could do. So I hope you'll think about this. Would you be willing to get involved? You say, I don't even know how to get involved. Come to the meeting on, two, on Wednesday and you will get the full detail. And I am praying that there will be many families and individuals in our church who will say, yeah, we're, we'll, we'd like to do something like that. We'd like to uh, help um, a family coming into our area. Today I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles to uh, 2 Samuel, and uh, we're probably going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 5, but we're going to be jumping around. And this is the time when David finally becomes the king. This whole idea of David, the shepherd boy on the hills of Bethlehem, becoming the king of Israel began when the prophet visited his family's home and he was anointed out of the blue. From that moment on, David knew that, he, that God had a plan for him. You know, sometimes we think that that plan is going to happen quickly and easily. If it's God's will, it's going to go well. Not necessarily. That's not the story of David. He was about 13 or 15 years old when he was anointed to become king of Israel. Now, certainly at 13 or 15, he wasn't ready to become the king, but he had a sense of destiny and calling that the prophet made known. And it wasn't until he was 37 years old that he became the king of all Israel. Now, you do the math. That's a long time. Um, David started a path of hardship, difficulty, pain, but in this chapter, David is called, and all the 12 tribes of Israel, they accept him as their king. And the long-awaited crown comes to his head. What happens to a person when all of a sudden they are thrust into power? position and influence how's that going to change them how, how, how is that going to alter the way they act look think their perspective will it be for the better or for the worse you know uh, I live with my wife Cindy and our son James who is 25 years old and here's a picture of us um, and James is you know uh, he is my wonderful son who uh, breaks all the rules as far as parenting a child. Um, James is one of the smartest guys I know. 
and he always has a plan. And one day he came to me, not, you know, and, and this has now become sort of a recurring conversation. He says to me, Dad, uh, how much this house? I said, well, you know, a house costs a lot of money. Yeah, what, $500? Well, no, actually. Did you know that houses cost more than $500? They do, actually. They cost more than $500. I said, no, a lot more than that. He says, Dad, I buy this house. I said, James, why would you need to buy this house? You already live here with mom and I. No, Dad, I buy this house. You, Mom, you move out. I said, well, where are we going to live? Oh, you'll get a condo somewhere. I don't know where in the world he got this. Well, what are you going to do? He says, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to invite my friends. They live here. I said, so let me get this, James. You already live here, but you want us to move out so you can be the boss of this house? Bingo, he says. There's something inside of us that we'd like to be in charge. I mean, we'd like to have the power. But actually coming into a position of power is an incredible test of our character, of who we are. Power changes people. When you become the boss, when you become the leader, when you become the winner, this rush of success and power can do something to you. In fact, there are articles and studies that have been done on people who were promoted in their organizations and eventually became the person of power. I mean, what's going to happen to you when you look around the room and it turns out you're the most powerful person in the room? You can make all the calls. People will have to do what you, ha what, what you say. You know, this is America. In America, our Constitution was written based upon this clear understanding that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so when our Constitution was written, there was a careful study at separating the power. So we have the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch. And the, the, the idea was, and the great experiment of America was, not any one person has all the power, not any one branch has all the power, and sort of like this, this check and balance system between the three branches will prevent things from going very wrong. Now maybe you're not into constitutional government, but you might have seen the Lord of the Rings. J.R. Tolkien, in his, in his trilogy, he even has a character by the name of Gollum who has the ring. And the ring is the source of power, and Gollum calls it my precious. Have you ever seen that guy? Am I the only one that's seen that? Okay, you have. And it is brilliantly portrayed that how Gollum, when he gets the ring, is turned into a soulless, wispy creature. He's unable to handle power. So what would David be like when he gets the power? Our study really has been working around this whole idea that David is called by God a man after God's own heart. So what are the characteristics that we see in the life of David that would make God say that? And one of the characteristics is how David responds to finally being thrust into the position of power. 
Now, the first part of the story is the fact that David waited a long time. I mean, the story of David was as a 15, 13, 15-year-old boy, I don't know exactly, um, he, was, he was anointed as king. Uh, David endured a lot of hardship and difficulty. In fact, when the sons of Jesse were assembled and the prophet was looking to anoint one of the sons of Jesse, he gets all the way to the very last son and then he even asks this question, kind of an embarrassing question, Jesse, I mean, I was told to come to your house and anoint one of your sons and I've seen all of these sons in front of me, but I mean, none of them are the one. Do you have any other son that maybe you have forgotten? Oh yeah, I actually do have one more son. He's David. He's the He's the youngest. He's out in the field watching the sheep. I mean, what would you feel like if you were the forgotten son who just stays out with the sheep? You don't even get invited to the party. David is disrespected by his brothers, demeaned and, uh, you know, minimized. Then one day David kills the giant Goliath and he becomes the hero of Israel. And with, with that comes great popularity, even to the point that the king becomes threatened because David's popularity exceeds his now. And so Saul kind of goes crazy and he starts throwing spears at David to kill him. You know, when someone's trying to kill you, you've got to run away. So David runs away and For seven years, David is a fugitive. Not because he'd done anything wrong. He was innocent. He was a loyal, trustworthy servant of King Saul. But he was hiding in caves. He could never settle down. If he settled down in one place, then he could be found. And Saul would, in fact, come and try to kill him again. There are seven years... This is David's life. This doesn't sound like a very fun plan, does it? Finally, Saul and Jonathan in one single battle are both killed. And the news of Saul's death, people thought would lead David to the throne, but even that didn't do it because immediately Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, proclaims himself king, and 11 of the 12 tribes follow him. David becomes the one, the king of the tribe of Judah, one out of 12. I mean, this this dream is kind of like a nightmare at this point. But David, throughout all of this time, shows remarkable restraint and an incredible attitude. He will wait for God to fulfill the plan in God's time, in God's way. And he refuses any shortcuts. Like the time that Saul came into the cave to relieve himself. David and his men were back in the cave. Saul walks into the mouth of the cave. His eyes are not adjusted to the darkness, so he can't see them, but they can all see him. And David's men are saying, David, look at this. God has delivered your enemy into your very hand. I mean, this is, this is like a sign from God. Be careful when people tell you stuff like that, okay? 
David goes and he looks like he almost gets caught up in the moment because he goes close enough to Saul to cut off a corner of his garment and then he is stricken with a sense of grief that he had done something like this and he returns to what he has always lived by and that is no, I will not go beyond the boundaries of God to get what I want or what I even think God wants to give me. I will restrain myself and wait to become king in God's time and in God's way. And another time, David and one of his bodyguards went into the middle of the camp. I mean, 3,000 soldiers around Saul. As typical, the king would always sleep in the middle of the camp, so all of the men were surrounding him, but they were not on their defense that night because David miraculously walks into the very center of the camp, and his bodyguard says, David, like, I know you're all about this, not wanting to kill the king because you have a conviction about that. I don't have that conviction. Give me the word. I will pick up the king's very own spear, and in one jab, I will kill him, and it'll be the end of it, and you will then be the king. David says, do not touch him. Because David showed great restraint, and he was respected the plan of God and waiting, waited for the timing of God. Let's just say from 15 years old to 37 years old, this was a dream gone bad. But in 2 Samuel chapter 5, after the death of Ishbosheth, you're going to love the names in this sermon Ishbosheth, Mephibosheth, okay, you, you, you can say that five times fast. Um, but David becomes the king after Ishbosheth is killed and this is the moment in 2nd Samuel chapter 5 when David gets to where he's been going and all 12 tribes surround him and the crown is offered to David this is what it says then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, and you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in, and the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. Therefore all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron and king David, okay, this is the first time that's happening, made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over all of Israel. This is the moment that David is crowned king. You know, it was a bloody, violent war for seven years between the 11 tribes who followed Ishbosheth and the house of Saul against David. People died. Blood was shed. And finally, these 11 elders are before him. Have you ever been in the presence of your enemies? 
what would you do if you had the power to make them pay? What would David do with this newfound power as the crown was lowered onto his head and he was the king over all Israel? Would he find subtle ways to hurt these leaders who had rejected him for all of these years and had aided the enemy? How would he treat them? What would he do? What would be his attitude? And, and you know what? We, we see right here exactly what happens Therefore, in verse 3, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. David, in this moment, is the most powerful man in the country. The crown now rests on his head. He could have peacocked around and made them pay. But what does David do? David makes a covenant to them. And he says, I'm making this covenant to serve you as your king. And I make it in front of the Lord and all of you. You and God himself may hold me accountable to serve you and execute justice and righteousness. You know, I think that's why David is described, one of the reasons why, he's described as a man after God's own heart. You know, one day, the king of kings came to this earth. It's Christmas. Jesus was born in a manger. He was a baby. This is the limitation of God beyond any of our understanding. What would Jesus do on earth as the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Well, you just have to read through the Gospels. And one very amazing passage is when, as they are, they are on their way to the end of Jesus' life, the betrayal, the crucifixion, and, and in those moments, the, the disciples are actually jockeying for a position, trying to decide who's going to sit on the right hand and the left hand of Jesus when he becomes king, right? And, and so it's high drama, great tension among the 12, and Jesus sits and has a dinner with them, and at the end of the, the dinner, uh, Jesus does something absolutely remarkable John 13 verse 1 now now before the feast of the past now before the feast of the passover when jesus knew that his hour had come and that he should depart from this world to the father having loved his own who were in the world he loved them to the end and supper being ended the devil having already put it into the heart of judas iscariot simon's son to betray him Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going to God. Okay, I'm, I'm not completely certain what's going on here. I think Jesus always understood he was God and had all power. But in this moment, as he neared the end of his earthly journey, he was made more fully aware of the fact that he was God over all. He had all power and all authority. And in that moment of that understanding, what does Jesus to, to this bickering, fighting group of disciples, it says right here, Jesus, uh, and, and he rose from the supper, laid aside his garments, took off his rabbi coat and put it down. And he took a towel and he, he girded it around him. He wrapped it around himself. And then 
After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet with the towel with which he was girded. So the disciples are watching Jesus. Here, he's like oblivious to their interaction among each other. And he goes and he takes off his rabbi coat, wraps the towel around him, pours water into a basin, and then he starts to approach them, and he begins to kneel down. And they're like, no way. No, oh, oh my. We cannot let our rabbi do the job of the lowest of servants. How unthinkable is it? How humiliating would it be for our rabbi himself to bow before us and wash our feet? And Peter, I love Peter. Peter said to him, uh, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash your feet, you have no part in me. Simon Peter said to him, well then Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. I mean, you know, Peter is great. He's an all or nothing guy. All right, either don't touch me or give me a whole bath, Jesus. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you're clean, but not all of you. Judas was still there. For he knew, that he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, you're not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and your teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. The question is, what are you going to do when you sense you have power and influence and authority? Are you going to increase your perks and make everybody treat you with greater respect? Are you going to force them to do what you ask them to do and take great delight in bossing people around? How many of you like to boss people around? There's a few honest people in the room. You might say, well, I'm not a king. No, you, maybe you're not a king, but... Um, all of you have some power and influence. Did you know that? You do have power and influence. I mean, you may be the best player on the field or on the court, and with that comes power and influence. You might be the teacher, the coach, the team leader in your office, or the supervisor. I mean, do you look down on people or abuse your influence and power? If you are a parent, you have power over your children. How do you use that power over your children? I mean, do you yell and scream and demand that they do exactly as you say? Now, don't get me wrong. Parents need to lead their children and make sure their, their children do the right thing. But when your children look at you and hear what you have to say, are you a boss, a tyrant, an authoritative person that forces them to do what they have to do? Or do they sense from you that you serve them as you guide them and lead them and from your heart even the instructions flow with a measure of love and concern. That's the question. 
Why is David a man after God's own heart? Because in the moment when he received the crown and the power came, he chose to receive them and promised to serve them under the authority and in accountability to God himself. You know, that's really where the power is. Did you know that? You know, we don't really wash feet too much today, but you know what we are going to do today as a church is we're going to go to Weller Elementary and we're going to give help and fun, just like the principal said. I loved it when Jared explained that we were going to do this and we had to wait to the last minute to get the go-ahead, because these are unusual times. And, and Jared said, wow, we've only got a few weeks to prepare for this, and usually we have a lot longer to prepare for this. And we wondered, are, are we going to have enough groceries to give away? Will people bring presents? I mean, is, is the lead-up time enough for us to really make a difference? And guess what? You all came through. And we have watched over the last few weeks as you've brought groceries and presents and things to give away. And it, 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 like it just flowed out of you. And I'm so glad to be a part of this group of people here at High Street. Because we're going to go today and we're going to pass out hot chocolate and we're going to help kids get presents to wrap for their families so that Christmas can be fun and special. Because that's what we're supposed to do. Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, eventually laid down his life on a cross because he was the lamb of God who took away the sin of the world, but he was really the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he said, this is the way power is exercised. Serve each other, help each other. Last. David also is the king of kindness. He's the king of kindness. Um, in Samuel chapter 9, the kingdom has been established now. David has this idea. In verse 3 it says, Then king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? Seriously, David, you want to show the kindness of God to the house of Saul who has been chasing you for years and years and years? I do. For the sake of my friend Jonathan. And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. What an interesting description. So the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. His name was Mephibosheth. Now the story of Mephibosheth and the reason why he was lame goes like this. 2 Samuel 4, Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old 
when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled, and it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. So here's what happened in the life of Mephibosheth. He's five years old. Anybody here know a five-year-old little boy? He's five years old. News comes that the king has been killed, and Jonathan, the crown prince, who is his father, they have both been killed. He's five years old, and he just hears that his dad is dead. He loved his dad. Jonathan was one of the best men in scripture, in my opinion. I mean, he, he was a godly, good man who sought the Lord, and wow, it was amazing. And Mephibosheth lost him. And the nurse said to him, Mephibosheth, I've got to grab you and we've got to get out of here because the way this works, in the royal line of succession, you are next and people who want to seize power may very well come and find you and kill you. And, and so I've got to get you out of here and we've got to go now. And she, in haste, picked him up and went running away to save his life. And in the process, she drops him and he is injured to the point where he would forever be lame from five years old on. And the story of his life is, I used to be the prince. I used to have this incredible dad. I used to live in a palace. But then some things happened, and, and then, then my nanny dropped me and I can't walk anymore, and, and I have to always be afraid that maybe one day the sitting king will come and find me and he will kill me in order to solidify his rule and bring stability to the kingdom because I am in the bloodline of the king. And that's why I live in Lodabar. Lodabar is a place that is a nowhere place. You go there when you don't want to be found. And because he was lame, he really was living off of the, the generosity of Makir. At this time, he's more than 20 years old, maybe 25, 26 years old, and has a son of his own. And he's, he's poor, and he's dependent, and he's a nobody. And he lives with this dreaded fear that one day he will be found and he might be killed. And then the day comes. A knock at the door. Who is it? We are the servants of King David. The king is looking for Mephibosheth and has orders for us to bring him to Jerusalem and Mephibosheth immediately thought, here it is. He goes to his son. He says, Micah, daddy's got to leave. And I don't know what's going to happen, but you'll, you'll be okay here. And Mephibosheth goes out with these men expecting that they may kill him on the spot. But then they say, no, you're coming with us to Jerusalem. They get, he gets on a cart because he can't walk. And with every mile, the dread of the moment when he gets to Jerusalem begins to grip him more and more and more. 
And he wonders, when I get there, will they just slay me outside of the palace or will I even see David? And so he gets there finally and they bring him in front of David the king. And he's thinking, I'm about to be killed. Will it be one swift chop of the head? What's going to happen? Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. And he waited. Then David said, Mephibosheth? He answered, here is your servant. So David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for your Jonathan, your father's sake, and I will restore you all the land of, of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat at my table continually. Wow. What? David, you haven't brought me here to kill me? Oh, no. I brought you here to show you kindness. In fact, you are now one of the wealthiest men in the kingdom because all of the assets of the former king are now yours. And I've hired a management team, Ziba. His 15 sons and his 20 servants will take care of all the business for you. So that we'll, we'll make a good return on what you have. But I want you to stay with me in the, in, in the palace. And I want you to eat with my sons. You will be honored. And you will be with me for the rest of your life. Do you know what this is a story of? This is the story of what God has done for us. I don't know what you think God feels toward you. I don't know. I don't think so much of the time when we forget grace, the kindness and the goodness of God, we begin to realize, we begin to wonder, well, I think God, he's probably really ticked with me right now, and I would hate to have to see God today. But this is the story of the gospel. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit, who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh. Anybody want to give a testimony? Don't. Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, just as the others, this is what we deserve. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's like Jesus says, hey, get up. Come, come eat at my table. That's what God wants us to feel. That in the ages to come, 
he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You have no idea what's about to take place in eternity for you because of Jesus. You'll be the recipient of the riches of his kindness for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. This is the story of Mephibosheth. It's kind of like a, a foreshadowing of all of our story. I love you. I forgive you. My greatest joy will be to show you kindness. Now, and for all of eternity. I want to ask you if you will to bow your head.